So, what's God's will for your life? Thought we'd start off with a nice, easy question this morning. Toss you a little softball to get the juices flowing and ease into it. What is God's will for your life? Most often when I've seen someone consider that and even considered that question myself in the past, it's so easy to think, what does God want me to do? To answer that question, what is God's will for my life, then we answer it by saying, what does God want me to do? What should I really be doing in my life? What should I busy myself with? What would God have me do? It's as though God has put clues in your life. You sprinkled some breadcrumbs, and it's up to you, spiritual Sherlock Holmes, to solve the case. And a spiritual life of abundance and blessing is awaiting you if you can just solve the puzzle. And God does have a will for your life, no doubt. It's not like God comes and saves you and then he says, all right, good luck. I'll see you when you die. No, he's intimately involved with your life. In fact, he's always at work. He's actually at work right now. So how can we align ourselves with what God is working towards? I think the better question to ask is not, what does God want me to do? The better, deeper question is to ask, what does God want to do in me? That's an entirely different question. And one that gets us far closer with how God works in our lives. So what does God want to do in you? Last week was the part of this grand story of God's power to change the world. But this week is a story of God's power to change you. And what unites both of these stories, the common thread between them, is, is that he's going to pull you out of your comfort. It's inevitable and it's inescapable. God calls us out of our comfort to change the world, yes, but he also calls us out of our comfort to change us. Our passage today is a significant time jump from last week. Last week we saw the climax of the Old Testament story where God's people chose to become the people that God intended for them to be, for them to stop being a people of war and to become a people of worship that would reveal God's power to the world and become a light to the nations. We saw people that wanted to make God's presence central. We saw people that were devoted to worship, but this week, not so much. This week, we see something altogether different. We see a people devoted to idolatry, entrenched in sin, drowning in brokenness. But here's the kicker. Nobody cared. Nobody cared. So what happened? How did we get from there to here? Well, to understand what's going on in our passage today, we do need to understand that. We need to fill in those gaps. But I want you to listen for old mistakes 
old patterns and old failures that just keep creeping back up. After the temple was built, we saw Israel become that light to the nations as they came to pay homage to Solomon and to his God. But then Solomon slowly started to turn away. His heart longed for earthly comforts. And as the king goes, so goes the people. It tells us that Solomon loved many foreign women. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That is a lot of foreign women. God specifically told him, do not marry them. Or they will turn your heart away in love for their gods. And that's exactly what happened. Solomon didn't just love his wives, he loved their gods. Before we saw Solomon on his knees with his hands raised, saying, May all the nations of the earth know that you are God and there is no other. And now we see him bowing before Ashtaroth of the Sidonians, Milcom and Molech of the Ammonites, Chemosh of the Moabites. These are gods of child sacrifice, gods of sexual slavery, gods of brutality. Gods that dehumanize and destroy their worshipers. And it tells us that Solomon clung to these gods in love. Such a sad picture. So what did God do? God brought war back to Israel to wake them up. He brought war from the outside, from Hadad, the Edomite, He brought war from the inside, from Jeroboam of Nebat. But it never turned Solomon's heart back to God. He never woke up. And so finally, God said, Solomon, I'm going to tear the kingdom away from you, and I'm giving it to your servant. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's the same thing God told King Saul. God also told Solomon, he said, because of my promise to David... I will let you keep one tribe for his sake. And when Solomon died, Rehoboam, his son, became king. And he forced the Israelites, his people, into slavery like Pharaoh. He was harsh. He was cruel with his own people. He laid heavy burdens on their backs. And finally, the people had enough and they revolted. And ten tribes broke away. And they formed their own new kingdom, and they made Jeroboam of Nebat their king. And now we see Israel, once united in purpose and mission, now they're divided, split into two kingdoms, and waging war against one another. And to make sure that those two kingdoms didn't reunite, Jeroboam set up two altars, one in Bethel and one in Shechem. Why? Because he didn't want anyone from those ten tribes going to Jerusalem to worship And if they did that, then they'd start to want to reunite the kingdoms again. And so to make sure that didn't happen, he made two golden calves. And then he gathered all the people and he said to them, See, O Israel, and behold, these are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Sounds familiar too, doesn't it? Everything fell apart. And Israel and Judah entered into a downward spiral, just like we saw in the book of Judges. It started off so hopeful, everything was so purposeful, but it ended in civil war and everyone doing what was right in their own eyes. 
1 Kings tells us how king after king turned away. Failure after failure, generation after generation, it only got worse and worse and worse. And then finally, we meet King Ahab. Ahab married Jezebel, the princess of Sidon. Jezebel worshipped Baal because Sidon was the heart of Baal worship. She brought Baal with her, and so Ahab worshipped Baal. And it says that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord to anger than all the kings who were before him. He was the goat, an all-star of rebellion. Israel's a mess. They're divided, devoted to idolatry with no thought of God or his purposes. This is exactly what we saw when Israel entered the promised land. It's all so familiar how everything fell apart so quickly and the people in the end turned to Baal and God was completely forgotten about. So what's the significance of all of that? Well, here we are after all these centuries and we're right back where we started. So why point all that out? It's because we know this storyline, don't we? Hasn't that plot played out a billion times in your life. You set your heart to worship. You set your heart to try and make God central. And then so quickly, we find ourselves falling back into the same old mistakes of the past. Those old patterns just keep coming back up. Maybe it's like last week where we're encouraged by this beautiful moment that we see with David and the people. And perhaps you found a renewed desire within yourself to devote your life and your heart to the Lord, to seek his presence in your life. But then by Tuesday, we find ourselves making those same old mistakes. Returning to the same sin patterns, getting stuck in the same old ruts. And we forget God and we find out how hard it is to remember him and the cycle continues and it feels so unbreakable. We desire new life and yet we so quickly find that we are so good at living an old one. And sometimes after you try enough times and you fail, you start to grow cynical and indifferent and you think, why even try anymore? I'll just end up right back where I started. Maybe new life is more than just you deciding to do what God wants you to do. Maybe it's also recognizing that God needs to do something within you. So what does that look like? How does God work within us to break those cycles and to bring real new life? Well, in our passage, the first thing we see God do is he interrupts the story, literally. For 16 chapters, we see king after king and their failure after failure. 16 chapters of a downward spiral, and then out of nowhere, without any warning, 1 Kings 17, verse 1, God sends a prophet, a prophet named Elijah. 
And he sends Elijah to King Ahab into his throne room to prophesy the word of the Lord. And he says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there will be neither dew on the ground or rain from the sky for years, except by my word. Drought has come upon you. Now you get to that and you think it just seems totally random. Like we were talking about kings. And all of a sudden, one of God's crazy prophets shows up talking about rain, holding his doomsday sign up. But it's not random. This prophecy was God interrupting the story. He's laying down the gauntlet, just like he did with Moses and Pharaoh back in Exodus. And back in Judges, when we were first introduced to Baal, We learn that he was the the Zeus of the Canaanite pantheon of gods. He was the top dog. He was the rider on the clouds. Why? Because he was the god of the rains. And in in an agrarian society, the god of the rains, he was the one that gave life to you, to your economy, to your nation. Everything depended on the rains. And back then, Israel turned away from God, and instead they turned to Baal for life and blessing. And here they are doing it all over again. So Elijah going to King Ahab and giving this prophecy is a direct challenge to Baal and to the beliefs of his people. He's laying down the gauntlet and saying to Israel, you think Baal has all the power? Well, let's see. Let's see if what you put your trust in really works. So pray to your Baals, because drought has come upon you. And let's see who the God of the rains really is. So what is God trying to accomplish with this drought? A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Mark told you he enjoys watching American Idol. I enjoy watching people eat weird food like scorpions on a stick. We are both very strange people. I used to watch Andrew Zimmern on Bizarre Foods. It was that show where he'd go around the world eating all of these crazy foods that people have no business eating whatsoever in all of these back alley markets around the world. It's one of those shows where you start watching it at first and you're like, what type of people watch this show? And then 30 minutes later, you just watch the whole thing and you're hitting record on all the upcoming episodes. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. So I used to watch... Bizarre Foods with Andrew Zimmern. He's an accomplished chef, an author, producer. He's actually known as one of the nice guys in the business. He's developed a reputation for being very kind and very humble. But that wasn't always the case. He was interviewed a number of years ago, and he told a little bit about his story. He said that he grew up in a wealthy family in New York City, And at a very young age, he was exposed to all kinds of excess, and he got hooked on drugs and alcohol. And he said that's what gave him that spark. It's what got him through life. It's what brought him comfort every day. It's what he looked forward to. Just became a part of his life. What was life without those things? And after he graduated, he started working in the restaurant industry, and he actually did really well, and he started working his way up, and he worked in a number of the great kitchens in New York City. 
But as his status and his profile began to grow, so did his appetite for drugs and alcohol. And it got to the point where he was trying to balance both, his career and his comforts. He'd drink at night, and then cocaine was his coffee in the morning. It became his crutch that got him through life. And so one morning, his boss showed up and found him passed out in the kitchen. And he sat Andrew down, and he said, it's not working out. I'm letting you go. And that started Zimmern on a downward spiral, a long season of drought where he lived homeless in New York City for years. So, of course, the interviewer asked, well, then how did you get to where you are today? He goes, oh, it's simple. It got to the point where I realized that the very things I trusted in, I realized they never really worked. So why does God bring drought? To show Israel that what they place their trust in doesn't work. God interrupts the story by introducing circumstances that show the bankruptcy of what they look to for their comfort, for their blessing, for their hope. God pulls the rug out from underneath what they look to to rescue them from their suffering and to hold their life together, the thing they look forward to every day and the thing that made them feel like everything would be okay. God brought drought to break the back of their idols. And God will bring drought to break the back of yours. This passage challenges us to have a different perspective on how God works in our lives. And it doesn't ask what we think of it. Our default is to think that God's at work when things are going well. And then when things aren't going well, we think, well, God, where are you? God, you're distant. You've abandoned me. And yet this passage teaches us something totally different. God brings drought. Where your comfort's no longer comfort. When your hopes start to feel hopeless, when your resources run completely dry and what used to satisfy you doesn't anymore, and when what you used to depend on just stops working. And part of us responds to that and we think, you know, I just don't want to think that there's anything in my life that would require God to do something like that. And then there's another part of us that that's terrifying. God working in our lives like that. It sounds so uncomfortable and threatening. And yet, do you see the hope? These are not the moments that God is distant. This is when God came close. Because he's so close that he's actually moved to the very thing that your heart clings to in love the most. God brings drought so that God can bring new life. So, how does he do that? How does he bring new life in these moments? How does he change us? Well, to see that, God wants us to spend time with the widow. After Elijah gave the prophecy to Ahab, God sent Elijah far away to a small brook in the middle of nowhere where he was fed by ravens and he had water to drink. God sent Elijah there to wait 
to wait until the effects of the drought had set into the land and the whole land was thrown into the chaos of survival. But then that brook dries up and God tells Elijah it's time to move on. And he tells Elijah to go to perhaps the most surprising place of all, Zarephath. Zarephath was in the heart of Sidon. And Sidon was the heart of Baal's domain. Because it's there that God will show how he brings new life into this world because he's going to take what's precious to him from the clutches of Baal. He tells Elijah there's a widow there. She's going to feed him. She's going to provide for him. So Elijah goes. He travels into the belly of the beast. And when he arrives there, he sees her. She's just quietly gathering sticks. And Elijah asks her for a drink of water and some bread. And obviously the effects of the drought had long settled in. Because she said, I'm just gathering these sticks to prepare one final meal for me and for my son. It's all we have, and then we will die. It'll be our last supper. But Elijah says, no, it won't. Don't be afraid. Go make a cake of bread for me, and then make one for you and for your son. And as surely as the Lord lives, your flour and your oil will not run out until this drought comes to an end. The Lord God himself will provide for you. But make no mistake, the Lord is not after this widow's hunger. He's after her heart. Why? Because even though Israel had stopped caring about the purposes of God, God did not stop caring about his purposes. God was still taking worship to the world to bring life. But instead of that coming through a people, now it was simply a prophet that was a light to the nations. God will bring about his purposes. And Elijah stayed with this woman and her son for some time. We don't actually know how long. But it was long enough for Elijah to begin to love them. And they were special to him. They meant something to him. And we see that whenever one day out of nowhere, God interrupts the story once again. Tragedy. The widow's son dies. You can see it in your mind. Widow's son dies and grief falls upon her house and she comes carrying her dead son in her arms and she cries out to Elijah, you being here has turned the eyes of your God upon me and he is a, he's punishing me for my sins. And at this point, I just want to say this. When we don't understand how God works in our lives, then we'll inevitably make the same mistake as this widow. We'll think that we're being punished when God is actually pursuing us. And in one of the most human and touching moments you'll find in the Bible, Elijah takes the dead boy from the widow's arms. He carries him up to his room and he lays him down. And through racking sobs and choking tears in the drought, of death and anguish. 
Elijah pours out his grief. He cries out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity upon this woman by killing her son? And then we see Elijah do something that's strange to us. He stretched himself out over the boy three times. What he's doing is a profound act of empathy, of identifying with the boy's condition. Because to touch a dead body would have made Elijah unclean before God. Yet Elijah doesn't care. Elijah throws his own cleanness to the side. He takes the boy's uncleanness upon himself for the boy's sake. So that he might intercede for the boy in the place of death. But here's the thing. It was in his grief and sorrow that Elijah was moved to ask God to do something that he'd never done before. It's actually the great mystery of grief. That in some mysterious way it awakens our imagination for what the power of God can do. Elijah asked God for something which there was no historical precedent. He asked God to do something that had never even been requested of him, yet alone something that God had done. Elijah asked God to raise the dead. He asked God for resurrection. And the Lord listened to Elijah. And the boy was raised from the dead. In the first recorded resurrection in the scriptures, God gave the boy back to Elijah. Elijah gave the son back to the widow, and the widow gave her heart back to God. And she says, now I know that the word of the Lord your God is truth. That is new life, not just for the boy, but for the widow. So what was it that compelled God to listen to Elijah and to literally bring new life, resurrection life to this widow and to her son? It was grief. Grief. The story tells us how God will bring new life into this broken, drought-laden world. It's grief. And this isn't just an isolated case, and nor is it some cool trick that God is doing. God is actually giving us the template, the blueprint for how he will bring new resurrection life into this world. Have you ever noticed that resurrection in the Bible is preceded by profound acts of grief and mourning? Each story is marked by one that entered into the grief and the sorrow and the sadness of the death in this world. Elijah grieving over this woman's son. Elisha grieving over the Shunammite woman's son. Jesus entering into the grief of Jairus when his daughter laid there dead. Jesus weeping with Mary and Martha at Lazarus' tomb. Jesus Weeping over Jerusalem in the condition of his people just before he died. And he awaited his own resurrection. God brings drought so that God can bring grief. So that God 
can bring new life? Why is grief so central? Why is grief so necessary? Why does God rise up and respond in power in a way that he never did before to grief? It's because grief is when we stop acting like everything is okay. Grief is what happens when we finally wake up to reality and we see things as they really are. Grief is what happens when we stop pretending. Grief is what happens when we stop saying that everything is fine and there's no problem. Grief is what happens when we're finally willing to see the damage and destruction of sin and we are no longer indifferent towards it. Grief is when we share in God's heart for this world. Grief is when we start to feel what he feels. Grief is when we start to see what he sees. Don't you remember back in Genesis 3 when we looked at the fall, when God pronounces the curses, it was all written in poetry, not prose. It's because this isn't business. It was personal. This was God singing a dirge over his dead son and dead daughter. And grief is when we tap into that ancient sorrow of God. And we share in the grief of the one who sees the world as it is and the one who promised to make all things new in his grief. And God sends Elijah to this widow so that Israel might see themselves for what they are and they might grieve. In this drought, if Israel would have grieved over their condition, then they would have realized and awakened to the fact why God used this foreign, destitute widow. Because in this drought, if Israel would have grieved, they would have realized they were just like this widow. They lived just like her like Sidonians that worshipped Baal. They were widows just like her because they married their hearts to Baal and yet all this drought did was show that their husband was dead and they were left abandoned. They were the corpse bride. And yet God came to this widow in power. He brought circumstances that brought grief so that he might bring new life. This widow is God saying to Israel, if you would just grieve over your condition, if you would see the reality of your brokenness, if you would see the effects of everything that you've done and everything that you're doing, and you would call out to me, I will come to you with the power of new life. I will restore you. I'll remake you. I'll reshape you. I'll breathe new life into your dead bones. If you would grieve over your condition, then you can become a people that grieve over the condition of this world, and then I will restore you as a light to the nations. Would you grieve and see what I see and feel what I feel? Grief is me, oh, my people, sharing my heart with you. Grief is a beautiful invitation. But the truth is, Israel never accepted it. I hate to spoil the story, but this marks the beginning of the rest of the Old Testament. It tells the beginning of the rest of that story of a downward spiral of rebellion and decay. 
Israel is never willing to stop and see the damage and the destruction. They're never willing to grieve over their condition. Instead, they just kept trying to make those idols and their comforts work for them, returning to them over and over like a dog to its own vomit. And really, are we any different? Our default is just to say everything is just fine, isn't it? Oh, my issues aren't that bad. There's no problem to see here. Don't you see the happy face? We want to pretend like everything is just fine. We don't grieve the way that we should. We turn a blind eye to the effects of our sin and the things that have captivated our hearts and the idols that our hearts cling to and love. We turn a blind eye to its consequences. We turn a blind eye to the damage that it causes in us and around us. And when drought comes, those difficult times come, we can cling to those comforts and idols like Solomon. We cling to them in love. We cling to them like a life raft in the middle of the desert. And so, of course, we don't experience new life if we are so committed to trying to make the old life work. And all that just means that this story is showing us who we really are. We're not just that widow. We're that little boy. We're dead. Dead in our trespasses and sins. We're incapacitated and helpless. And so why would new life come just because you tried harder? Something needs to happen within you. And we need the same thing he did, the same thing that little boy needed. We need someone to come and to grieve over us, someone to come and identify with our condition and take all of our uncleanness upon himself and to cry out for us to have new life. And this story also marks the beginning of how God will send prophets to his people. You see it on virtually every page. You see their grief over the condition of the people and God, and God calling his people to recognize it through these prophets. But it's also through these prophets that God starts to talk about something new. They start talking about new life. They start talking about the dead coming back to life of corpses rising from the dust of valleys of dry bones becoming a valley of life and the earth giving birth to those that have been long dead. They also speak of the one that will come and grieve over his people. They talk about a man of sorrows who's acquainted with grief. One who will bear our griefs and carry your sorrows. One who out of the anguish of his own soul bared our iniquities. One who's numbered among the transgressors who will identify with sinners and take their place. One who grieves over their condition with the full heart of God, the one who stretches himself out over a lifeless people who were dead in their trespasses and sins, and he takes all of their uncleanness upon himself, and he cries out to God in his blood, his sweat, and his tears for them to have life. Grief is how God brings new life into this world. It's also how God will bring new life to you.
Because this resurrected Son of God invites you to grieve with him. How do you know? Well, we know because he gave you his spirit. The spirit of Christ dwells in you, Christian. And what does that spirit do? He brings conviction. He brings conviction of sin and the brokenness within us and around us to begin to give us eyes to see what he sees, a heart that begins to feel what he feels, to grieve over the effects of sin, to stop pretending like everything is just fine and to finally wake up to reality and to see our condition for what it is. It's why Paul says that there is a godly grief that leads to repentance. That's the same thing as saying there is a godly grief that leads to new life. There can be no new life in this faith apart from grief preceding it. Why? Because it's a requirement to enter into this kingdom. The grief of what I have done, the grief of the sin in my life that would require the death of God in order to remedy it. God brings new life through grief. So maybe the Spirit wants you to grieve. And it's time to finally grieve the reality of that addiction in your life. Those empty bottles and buying it now isn't working. It's a spirit that wants you to wake up, to see the damage that is caused. Not to crush you, but to mourn with you. So that you can see its effects, you can see the damage that is caused in you and around you. Or maybe it's grieving over a relationship. It's grieving over your marriage and to stop blaming. And just to grieve. To let God's heart for your marriage begin to be your heart. Or to grieve over your children. Perhaps a broken relationship with them or the broken relationship with a loved one or an estranged friend. Maybe it's time to grieve that person that you lost all those years ago that you've never allowed yourself to grieve. Maybe it's time to grieve over what was done to you all those years ago that you really want to pretend doesn't affect you. Yet it clings to you. And God invites you to grieve with him so that you might have new life. And that feels so scary because everything in this culture is built on giving you all of the opportunities and options to never have to grieve for a second in your life. And yet you are given a God that says, no, come, grieve with me, and I will give you a life that this world can never give. Come and grieve with me. And in that grief, I will begin to reshape your imagination for what my power can do. I will begin to give you new hopes and new desires. This grief will not be more than you can bear. It is not a wave that will swallow you whole. Grief is where God reveals his power and his glory. Grief 
turns into joy in this kingdom. Look at this widow. And look at Pastor Satyan Ariana. He's one of the pastors in the deep forest. He's a quiet, unassuming, gentle man. He's also a hugger. And I fully expect to get three years worth of hugs when we go back in November. He tells a story about when he attended a wedding in a village of some of his relatives. It was a Hindu wedding, as you'd expect. And as they were enjoying the luncheon, someone stood up and pointed at him. And they pointed out the fact that he was a Christian pastor and that they were offended by his presence. And so the guests started to get angry and they started to close in on him. And even though Pastor Satyanarayana had relatives there, no one came to his defense. He was all alone. And the crowd started getting worked up and getting angrier and angrier. And he tried to calm them down, but he couldn't. They started yelling at him. And one man in particular, who was the ringleader of them all, said, you bring your Christian God to these villages and you insult our Hindu gods. And so fearing that the situation was about to turn violent, he left and he returned home. But all that night, Pastor Satyanar couldn't sleep. Because his heart was heavy with grief. Grief. Grief and sorrow over his relatives. Grief and sorrow over these guests. Grief and sorrow over their gods. Grief and sorrow over the whole village. The whole deep forest. Grief over their condition. That they didn't know Christ. So he prayed. He prayed all night, in fact. And he asked God to show his power. So the next day, he went back to that village. And the first man he saw at that village was the ringleader. I was so angry with him. So Satinariana started to rush up to him quickly when he saw him. And that man actually thought that he was going to hit him when he got up close. But instead, Satinariana said, My brother, I came here to say that I am so sorry. I'm sorry for what happened yesterday. I'm sorry that I attended your wedding as I am a Christian. I just wanted you to know that I meant no harm. I just wanted to support my relatives. And I'm sorry that my presence was so disruptive. I hope that you would forgive me. Now, the other man was completely dumbfounded because of what he said next. He said, last night I had a dream. He said, you're Jesus. He came to me and he touched my garments and he said that I was healed. And when I woke up, my body was completely healed of a skin disease that I've suffered from my whole life. Why did Jesus heal me and not punish me for all that I did to you? Pastor Satyanara told him, the man listened, and the man believed. And like the widow, he said, now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord your God is truth. God brings new life through grief. 
for the glory of Christ. In the life of the world, let's pray.